Alex Moset, and welcome to today's episode of Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and what and win against big tech monopolies. Let's jump into Twitter. Um, we've got now Twitter, not a tech monopoly, but an absolute perpetrator of abusing our civil liberties and silencing free speech. Twitter's recklessness in this area is now actually having a nice, uh, huge spotlight shown on it. Um, not just because of Elon, but because of this whistleblower. There's two different articles reported on, one by CNN, one by Washington Post, uh, with a this whistleblower who came forward. It wasn't just any Joe Blow uh, employee at Twitter. This is actually their former chief security officer who reported directly to the CEO of the company. He was fired in January of this past year, Twitter alleges that it was due to performance issues. He says that he has attempted to flag the security lapses to Twitter's board and to help Twitter fix years of technical shortcomings and alleged non-compliance. He says that basically Twitter has <laughs> no way to actually understand or regulate their issues with bots. Twitter executives don't have the resources to fully understand the true number of bots on the platform and they were not motivated to. Why? Because they were selling ads for the bot usage. Twitter says, oh no, we would never charge you for a bot clicking on your thing or liking your tweet, right? But if they don't know who's a bot and who isn't a bot, well, well then why, how would they actually be able to prevent you from being charged ads, ad dollars for that engagement, right? Not only that, then they're reporting on the engagement in their quarterly earnings and their annual earnings and their 10K, they're giving out to public shareholders. And these executives have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders to report the truth. And these executives, as we've reported on on this show many times prior, what they've publicly asserted is that they have no more than 5%, i.e. less than 5% of bot and spam users on Twitter. Not looking good for Twitter right now, right? We'll come back to some of this guy's other claims here in a second, but that also dovetails, literally these things have come back to back here with now Elon issuing a subpoena to uh, Jack Dorsey, co-founder of Twitter, former CEO of Twitter. Apparently Twitter has been uh, issuing subpoenas against Musk and, and his team. Um, Twitter subpoenaed a number of Musk's associates, and the list includes several prominent investment firms and venture capitalists. You know, Twitter, why don't you just get out of your own way and, and go to Elon and say, Elon, okay, let's do, do the deal at, you know, 33. Uh, put in a 420 in there, and, uh, and then maybe Elon will agree, right? That was, Elon loves these, like, putting 420s and, and these... Um, fun numbers in his deals. It's clearly not worth $44 billion. You've clearly actually committed like serious legal uh, issues here, fraud. And if you don't close this deal, I, I know what, no, no matter what, the management team and former management team at Twitter is going to be embroiled in lawsuits for many, many years to come. But if you do at least sell the company, at least the lawsuit is going to come that you know, you could have maybe sold it for more money if you if you hadn't misled investors. But if you don't sell the company, the deal falls apart. They're coming after you for that and a whole lot more. 
So this whistleblower didn't stop there. He also said that, I think this is CNN's narrative, the disclosure paints a picture of a chaotic and reckless environment at a mismanaged company that allows too many of its staff access to the platform's central controls and most sensitive information without adequate oversight. What does that mean? Oh, so when you want to ban a user, take down their post, modify their post, shadow ban their post, that those controls are way too liberally distributed throughout different individuals and employees inside the company. And I'm sure some extended, you know, contractors that they have that help with content regulation. So they never set up the proper process and control. And then also, this is now CNN, it also alleges that some of the company's most senior executives have been trying to cover up Twitter's serious vulnerabilities. And then here we go. And that one or more current employees may be working for a foreign intelligence service. <laughs> Do you think that foreign intelligence service happens to be inside of one or multiple communist countries named China and or Russia? Hmm. What do you think? What are you willing to bet on that one? Uh, not only that, Twitter's leadership has misled its own board and government regulators about its security vulnerabilities, including some that could allegedly open the door to foreign spying or manipulation, hacking and disinformation campaigns. I mean, it just keeps going. The whistleblower alleges Twitter does not reliably delete users' data after they cancel their accounts. All kinds of uh, privacy violations in that statement. In some cases, because the company has lost track of the information, even better. What a, what a magnificent excuse. Not even, not even uh, negligence. They just, they just literally have lost the information. And that it has misled regulators about whether it deletes the data as, as it is required to do so. And so they say, yes, you cancel your account. We delete all your information. He says, no, they don't do that because they actually don't even know how to do it because this whole thing is a quagmire. Some of Zatko's most damning claims spring from his apparently tense relationship with Parag Agrawal. Hmm. Do you find that name familiar? Yes, you should, because that is the current CEO of Twitter. And the former CTO, Jack, after he left, made Parag the CEO. According to the, the whistleblower, Agrawal and his lieutenants repeatedly discouraged Zatko from providing a full accounting of Twitter security problems to the company's board of directors. They wanted him to, to cherry pick and misrepresent data to create the false perception of progress on urgent cybersecurity issues. And they went behind Zacco's back to have a third-party consulting firm's report scrubbed to hide the true extent of the company's problems. Wow. Some of this stuff, right? You know, you could say it's he said, she said. They cherry-picked what I was able to talk about. Okay, well, like, you still agreed to cherry-pick, right? But, for example, this, if he can prove this, that he hired a third-party consulting firm they did, their, <laughs> they did their audit, and then, um, you know, these other lieutenants under Parag expunged that report and, right, and, and kind of got rid of it, didn't disseminate it. Some of this stuff, there isn't necessarily a paper, paper trail that you can go and prove, but some of these things, there are absolutely paper trails. The disclosure is generally much kinder to Jack Dorsey, who is the person who actually hired Zach Coe. 
and whom Zacco believes wanted to see the problems within the company fixed. But it does depict Jack as, as extremely disengaged leading Twitter, so much so that some senior staff think he, he might have been sick. We've repeatedly talked about Jack just his aloof nature, just ultimately being a bad CEO, right? Someone always told me, if you want to be a good manager, doesn't matter, CEO, whatever, manager. Yes, you got to set the strategy, and, but do you do the follow-ups? Do you do the, the unpleasant things? Do you do the, the things that you could kind of just brush off in the rug, right? When, when you are managing people, are you actually looking and following up with them and going through what they're doing and giving them feedback? And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that holds people accountable. That's the kind of stuff that when you have really motivated team members, you can help really challenge them and give them feedback on how they're doing, right? But you have to, you have to provide the time to assess how they're doing and then provide the feedback, right? This guy's nowhere to be found. He's doing ayahuasca trips. Maybe he's doing some health stuff on the side. He's running Square, now called Block. He's aloof. Not an appropriate CEO. Should have stepped down a long time ago. And now I, th I think what you're finding here is just the beginning. This company has so many skeletons in this closet. I bet this is honestly part of Elon's plan. And I still think Elon wants to buy the company because Elon was not buying it for, for financial gain. Elon was buying it, and I do believe this, to help improve the state of free speech in this country, which has been under complete siege for years and has just escalated to a whole other degree of thought policing these past couple of years since COVID. Um, but it was still happening pre-COVID and we've been talking about it on our show ever since we started the show years ago. Now over three years actually on the show. I think Elon wants to buy it, but the guy's not an idiot. He doesn't need to spend an extra $10 billion if, if he's been actively lied to, right? And if when you do your diligence, you know, when you do your diligence and you look at, okay, well, how is the, this is, this was the apparent valuation and engagement and scale that you had. And then when I get in there and I see that there's just mayhem and chaos, you look at some of that as a future acquirer and you say, well, you know, I could actually clean a lot of this stuff up and create a lot of value. That's probably half the stuff. Zacco is talking about, you look at that. And if I'm Elon, I go dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. I'm going to make money. I'm going to clean this up. I'm going to remove a lot of the stop policing and these crazy open uh, security and silencing products and controls. They've federated out to everyone and their mother inside of this company. But then on the other part where it's, I mean, you've got legal liability with all these privacy viola violations, not deleting people's information. And then certainly, you know, the issue of bots and spam users, a huge problem. There's good and bad from this report, frankly, in the eye of the potential owner. Net net, though, I think it, it's it, this is a win for Elon, clearly. And um, it, and and if and I think this amps up the pressure on Twitter, just cut a deal. The markets are in a free fall. Maybe they've stabilized a little bit. But there's more to go. This is the first of what I think are many skeletons in some pretty dark closets that maybe Parag doesn't even know about because Jack has been so far removed from this company for so long. I'd be fretting right about now. eBay 
is trying to take a note out of every other kind of mid-market platform business and try and do some tech M&A. We've talked multiple times on the show about how eBay has just missed the mark. Their growth is lackluster. They're, we think they're fudging a lot of their numbers. We did a great video on that a few months ago. They had to reclassify historical GMV numbers and other, and other things and tried to just slough it off under the rug. No one really picked it up. We did a great deep dive video on that. Go check that out. I don't know, just a lack of leadership. They've had leadership turnover. Um, so now they're trying to do some, trying to make some moves, trying to do some tech M&A. They buy this company called TCG Player. Interesting play. Um, we've talked about this company before on the show. We talked about this company because we were highlighting Andreessen Horowitz. Now, I guess their website is future.com. So I guess this is like their media business, interesting aside. So anyway, they have been publishing third year in a row their top 100 uh, marketplace report. Similar to what we started to do with our top 50 B2B marketplace report, this is looking at kind of anything and everything. Our B2B marketplace report is very focused on product marketplaces. This is looking at service marketplaces and product marketplaces and a whole bunch of things. But anyway, so they've got their top 100 report here. This came out in the spring. We were covering this, highlighting, hey, what are some of the interesting kind of more unique marketplaces you wouldn't have thought of? And then we covered this company called TCG Player, which was new to the list, which was number 12 on the list and has now been acquired by eBay for roughly $300 million. They had raised like no money to this company. So these founders are cashing in. They'd raised $10 million that we know about in equity capital in 2018. And then they had $35 million loan. We covered this also in June of 2021, which means they're profitable. It means they got positive cash flow if they can pay down this debt. And now they're just acquired for $300 million, which means these founders, straight cash, homie, straight cash. And this guy's name is Chetty. Chetty Hampson. What a name. So Chetty's going to be in the market for some Maybe a boat. Maybe uh, I don't know if he's getting his own jet. Certainly a NetJets subscription. Chetty's been running this business for almost 24 years. Congratulations, Chetty. Really. Looks like he's the sole founder. But I don't know. He may have a co-founder in here. Yeah, no, there's two co-founders. Another guy named Raymond Moore. Out of, out of Syracuse, New York. 24 years. I mean, it's, that's a great story. It's a really phenomenal story. They're going to be run independently. Yes, owned by eBay, but still run independently. So here's the interesting thing, right? In January of this year, the company expanded its, its authentication service. Um, so January 2020, eBay will now authenticate trading cards worth $750 or more. And they want to then move by the middle of this year to $250 and higher. You know, so eBay has been making a big push to be able to authenticate products, which is, as we've talked about, eBay's fatal flaw. They've always been hesitant and kind of too slow to add these value-added services. Namely, the big one is fulfillment, right? Um, so eBay isn't saying centralizing all these uh, products and saying, hey, here's a giant eBay warehouse. 
put all your stuff here. Mo you know, a lot of the stuff on eBay is pretty pack and shippable, right? So if you had a giant warehouse in Memphis or in Atlanta next to FedEx or UPS, and you say to your small third-party sellers, just put all your stuff here. So when you're buying on eBay, could you buy multiple products and just pay one shipping fee? Because now all those products are coming from the same place. Can eBay you know, subsidize that cost by just centralizing this? And even if you're buying just a one-off item, probably, right? Get you the product much faster because now the seller doesn't need to kind of do everything themselves. So, I mean, that... What Amazon did, I don't know, many, 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 many years ago, right? Pretty tried and true strategy. But eBay has been very slow in fulfillment. I've been trying to do some stuff there, but never really investing hard physical assets in fulfillment. Then they started this authentication push. Uh, you've seen StockX get sued by Nike over their inability to properly authenticate sneakers. So yes, it does add more risk. And so now eBay said, okay, we're going to start to get into authenticating trading cards. Trading cards are on fire. Uh, this was in January. eBay said the trading cards category is growing significantly faster than its total marketplace. That's an understatement. I mean, the total marketplace like isn't growing. So any growth is significantly faster. Sorry, eBay. And the category saw $2 billion in transactions in the first half of 2021, which is equal to all of the trading card transactions that took place in 2020. That's a lot. Um, now that's on eBay. So TCG uh, had a $10 million weekend during, I think, Black Friday 2021. And just in July of this year, they made two acquisitions of their own. So they, they bought a content provider and events coordinator for the, this is the collectible industry. And oh, I guess this is, so they bought one company, which had already merged. So in 2020, the events coordinator and content business merged with the point of sale and inventory management company for hobby for hobbyists and hobby stores. It's like they forced eBay's hand into buying them because they literally locked up like the entire collectibles industry by buying this company, Fireball and Binder point of sale company. It, they rolled it up. Not not eBay, TCG Player did, right? They're the dominant marketplace for trading cards and these collectibles. Then they buy the leading, in one fell swoop, one company, which gives you the leading event coordinator and content provider for the industry, and the leading point of sale and inventory management solution for all these hobbyists and hobby stores. And that point of sale solution had over $200 million in throughput of GMV, right? Now here's be my question, why didn't eBay buy that company? I guarantee uh, TCG Player didn't spend $300 million buying an event coordinator and an old point-of-sale company. But if eBay was, I'd say, more with it, if eBay says, I, got, I have three or four billion dollars in GMV in collectibles and trading cards, and they say, hey, this is a fast-growing space of ours. Well, then eBay, why wouldn't you go do this? Why wouldn't you go buy Channel Fireball and Binder Point of Sale, right? But no, I mean, I'm curious when this deal happened. I wonder if, I mean, eBay must have been in talks with CCG for a while, but I'd be really curious how they thread the needle on this. Um, you know, did TCG buy 
these companies knowing that they were going to, I don't know, did they need cash from eBay to do the deal? I doubt it. I think the company's making a bunch of money, TCG Player is. And this just closed six weeks before they announced the eBay deal. Did eBay actually come to terms in six weeks? Like eBay saw this deal and they're like, oh my God, these guys did a great acquisition. These guys being TCG and eBay saying, oh, well, we just got to go buy TCG now because they've locked it all up. They've locked up the whole space. And these guys are going to now really start eating into our one of our fastest growing categories called the collectibles. That could happen. If they if they really kicked, if they really got the the better of eBay, which I think they did, because they're going to run this, they're going to run TCG as a separate business. It's going to be outside of eBay. So yeah, it's good that eBay is starting this. But if I was looking at eBay, this is the problem they're going to continue. It's like whack a mole, right? What are you going to do? Go buy all these vertical specific marketplaces? In these like niche areas of your business, you know they've they've missed the ball on secondhand clothing. We've covered that many times. They've missed so many of these balls, sneakers, secondhand clothing, buying the Channel Fireball and Bender point of sale. I mean, yes, TCG is a good doing something is better than nothing at this point for eBay. But still, um, they clearly don't have the right vertical specific expertise, either expertise to be able to do proper corporate development on a vertical specific level and or proper business leadership on a vertical specific, right? So if you had some who's running the collectibles business at eBay, and if you were to go buy this channel fireball bender company, would you actually have the right savviness in those leaders to roll that up and then compete head to head with TCG? eBay higher ups, if they were looking at the Channel Fireball deal, presumably said, no, we'd rather overpay for TCG because maybe they've got better leadership, management, foresight, whatever. I don't know. Authentication capabilities. That's the other value-added service. Like To me, what eBay has been missing this whole time, their Achilles heel, as we've talked about, is two things. They don't do the value-added services that their third-party sellers really desperately need and say they want. Etsy is actually doing a better job, frankly, in this area than eBay, but Etsy still has a long way to go too. We've also covered that on the show. And then the other one is eBay doesn't stock first party inventory. Huge disadvantage in terms of just giving consumers what they want. So if you can't do first party inventory, to me, if I'm eBay, I need to over index on the other thing, which is value added services. They got rid of PayPal. That's a pretty good value-added service called financial services. And they're like tiptoeing into this world of authentication. They're not really doing fulfillment. If I wanted to come over the top on eBay and really do something big, it'd be in the world of value-added services. And ideally, something in value-added services which could span across multiple of my verticals and hit a bunch of different types of third-party sellers. Kind of like uh, Shopify buying Deliver, right? Hey, eBay, go buy Deliver. Who's using Deliver? A bunch of third-party sellers. Could they also list some more stuff on eBay? Potentially. That's a value-added service. Very valuable value-added service. Something, eBay. But give me, give me something. Like, the more I look, I like, I like the deal on surface, and then the more I look at it, I go, oh, this actually kind of makes me more concerned than when I even started looking at this deal. 
Not because I don't like the deal, just because of what you missed along the way. Penn is acquiring the rest of Barstool Sports, which means now the company is, I think, 100% owned by Penn National, the uh, gambling company. Penn originally bought a minority stake, but with an option to buy the rest of the company over the subsequent years. They did that. They exercised two additional uh, tranches um, over these past couple of years after they bought into Barstool in 2020. Puts the total price tag for Barstool at $550 million, which Dave Portnoy is... Kind of like the, are the TCG player um, bit that we just did. They raised very little money, maybe less than $30 million over the history of the company. It was founded in 2003. So TCG player beat them by a few years. But yeah, you know, 20 year time horizon. And I'm sure he has Portnoy personally a, a huge, um, uh, Huge personal stake or had a huge personal stake in the business. They hadn't needed to raise much money, bootstrapped this thing for years and years and years. If you go watch some of the earlier videos on him in Boston and, um, you know, reporting off of a water cooler, literally off of, the, you know, a water cooler, um, that's kind of the vibe to it. And I, I remember being in college and watching these guys. So, um, yeah, they've been around forever. It's a great journey. Another great founder story. Um, congratulations to those guys. And, you know, they were really one of the first to trigger this convergence between media and gambling as online gambling has proliferated now. And you've, you've seen DraftKings and FanDuel as the two kind of tech native startups get into the space. But then you've now seen the incumbents, Penn National, uh, MGM and Tain is another one I'll talk about in a second. Um, Caesars and others start to get into their own digital betting capabilities. You've seen a huge rush to say, well, how do we acquire users? And what people have found out pretty quickly is that it becomes expensive to have to pay for ads and promotions and these kinds of things to continuously attract new users. Instead, how can you have a recurring business model like media, which if you enjoy gambling, there's a lot of people talking about who to bet on, what are the, what, what are the updates on the players, right? Who do we think is going to win this game, that game, right? That is a media business. So you can see how media and uh, gambling go hand in hand. And that's basically the convergence you're seeing. No new news here. But essentially what you're seeing is just an affirmation of that strategy for Penn to continue its buyout and, and buy out the whole thing of Barstool. Penn liked that strategy so much that they actually bought another company for almost four times the money uh, called Score Media. And that was just a year after, basically, in October of 2021, of all times, uh, for $2 billion. And it's not just Penn National that's done this. DraftKings has been doing M&A in 2021, getting it more into media. The Action Network was bought for a couple hundred million dollars uh, by a, a gambling kind of roll-up conglomerate. If you can't buy the company, there are a bunch of sports media companies looking at huge deals for licensing, you know, a, 
gambling licensing relationships. ESPN was in um, talks with Caesars and DraftKings for a $3 billion licensing deal. So there's a, just a lot of money floating around that convergence of gamble, online digital gambling and media. And the, the thought there is that we're still in the early sectors, right? There's still a lot of states that have not approved digital gambling. And if they have approved it, they've put a lot of handcuffs around it. Um, and there's just a bunch of states, big states like Florida, Texas, and California that haven't legalized it at all. So again, when you look at when you look at the justification for these deals, these media companies operate nationally. And so when you look at the economics, um, that's a part of the calculus is, hey, eventually these states are going to open up. Hey, um, you know, eventually we're going to be able to convert a lot more consumers to this. And so let's establish our foothold now and invest in this over the long term. That's another reason why, particularly maybe last year, you saw a lot of news about potential uh, consolidation. It's another thing that you see a lot when new disruptive digital capabilities are coming into the forefront. Um, traditional players consolidate and then can, can have more resources to invest in that digitization um, or, or just cram out new competitors from coming in. There's a bunch of offers made to uh, by Antane, which is out of Europe. They own a number of online poker sites and gambling sites. And um, they have a JV with MGM and, called BetMGM. And MGM was looking to buy them. And then DraftKings said, oh, no, we'll buy you for over $22 billion. Both of those deals never went through. But you're just seeing a lot of activity brought about the digitization of the industry, the convergence of media and sport and online sports betting. Uh, it's only going to continue. And you can certainly see Penn reaffirming that they like this strategy and have doubled and now really tripled down on that approach. Honestly, what I would see is can DraftKings move into, in, into physical? That, I mean, that's really how you complete the circle. I mean, if you have media, online and then physical i mean those are basically the three core functions of it the physical um i think does make a big difference from a from a branding from a just kind of customer loyalty standpoint and uh, trust and um it, i think it gives you a you, you basically need to have the fullest spectrum possible so that you can invest in digital and cover these losses and DraftKings has a bunch of losses and um, arguably, yeah, their stock price is down to, you know, 30% of what it was six months ago, or whatever it is, but let's see what's, what are they valued at? DraftKings has a $7 billion market cap. Caesars has 9 billion and Caesars actually makes money and, and DraftKings loses a bunch of money, right? Penn's at $5 billion market cap. So DraftKings, you know, they don't have Barstool. They didn't buy the score, the, you know, the big media company in, in, uh, in Canada. DraftKings still worth more than Penn Entertainment. Penn actually, <clears throat> again, makes money. DraftKings loses money, but DraftKings is worth more. To me, you, yeah, I mean, to me, that's the last bit is, is really completing the circle and getting that physical presence, which is making money, which 
is valued much lower. And, but maybe that's why DraftKings doesn't want to do it because then they're going to be viewed like a traditional casino and they're being valued, you know, high growth, high flying tech startup, even though their stock was literally three times where it is today. Facebook Marketplace partnering with DoorDash. So many questions in this. Where is Uber? How did Uber miss on this? And is it because Facebook see, you know, because Uber is more of a conglomerate, right? They've got ride sharing, they've got food delivery, freight. Does Facebook see Uber as more of a threat? Even though Facebook is, you know, worth, yeah, actually their stock is way down. Yeah, Facebook is worth 430. Uber's worth 55. They always just basically stay at the same price. Um, what's DoorDash? <clears throat> 25. <clears throat> so was there better economics in DoorDash? Did Facebook get warrants? Did they get options? Kind of like Amazon getting uh, options and warrants from uh, Grubhub. Also, not, don't know. So this is uh, not necessarily focused around food. DoorDash can deliver non-perishable goods to you as well. Then they also mentioned Dolly. And we know this company, Dolly. Dolly was acquired by a company called Updater. And yeah, this happened last summer. Um, and so Updater is a very interesting company as well. They're in the moving and storage space. They give software to multifamily rental management companies and say, hey, give our app to your new renters when they're moving in and, and moving out, but really moving into their apartment. Our app will help them get moved in and coordinate. And then also set up a bunch of services um, around, you know, I need internet, I need, I need cable, I need, you know, heating and, and, and power and insurance and storage and all these things. And Updater just raised money from Vista, <clears throat> Vista's credit fund, gave him $215 million to Updater. Dolly had merged into Updater last summer to bring the, the basically that last mile logistics. Hey, I'm moving. I need to move my stuff, you know, from here to here as a part of my moving my house. Dolly can also do other kinds of moves like, hey, I'm buying a sofa off of Facebook Marketplace and I need to ship that thing on over. Um, there are a number of competitors to Dolly. I think I had used Dolly when I had bought some stuff off of Facebook Marketplace's competitor because I don't want to use Facebook, big bad tech monopoly. Um, but if you are thinking, if you use Facebook Marketplace, don't. It's not that good. And Facebook's the devil. So I use OfferUp and then I would use OfferUp, which is better than Facebook Marketplace. There's also a Japanese one called Mercari, um, but don't use the tech monopoly. They're bad people. Um, and, in, and then I would use Dolly, and there's a couple other players, to then ship my thing that I bought. You know, it's like tag sales, digitized tag sales, right? So I bought a second fridge for our, in our garage. It's actually a commercial fridge, a GE fridge. Our primary fridge in the kitchen was on the fritz. So I bought a second fridge, uh, spent... $200 on the fridge, spent $200 on the dolly and got this fridge for 400 bucks. I have the repairman come out for my 
main fridge in the kitchen, checking it out. The the new part cost more than $400, right? So for more than I bought this entire other fridge and had it delivered. Um, so I'm like, hey man, just come out to the garage. You know, why don't you check this thing out? Why don't you show him my other fridge? And he looks at it and goes, oh, this is, this is nice. It's like a big commercial fridge, pretty tall too. And I was like, hey, guess how much this thing is? And he goes, well, you know, I mean, and I was like, I got it used. I got it off one of these sites. And he goes, yeah, you know, maybe uh, six or eight. He's like, usually it goes for 12. And I was like, what's he talking about? Is he talking about like six or $800 and it goes for $1,200? And then I realized he's talking about thousands of dollars. This is like a Gary V clip now, but turns out this fridge was like $12,000. This guy, the repairman, thought I bought it for $6,000. He almost fell over. He almost, he almost collapsed when I told him that I'd actually bought it for $400 all in. <laughs> I mean, he, he couldn't contain himself. He's shocked. Anyway, I know for a fact you will never find those deals on Facebook Marketplace because they're the absolute devil, but you will find them on OfferUp or Mercari. I have no financial interest in either of those companies. We just don't like big, bad tech monopolies on this show. Long story short, I thought it was interesting that Facebook has integrated only exclusively with Dolly. I mean, Dolly's not a big company. And I mean, that's a big win for them. I had no idea. So this article is saying uh, Facebook Marketplace, which only lets you get larger items delivered through Dolly. Like there's multiple other players. There's Lug. There's... Um, Bellhop, which just got a partnership with Home Depot. Uh, and then there's GoFor. There's, um, I don't know. There's multiple of these. There's a bunch of these. Then you look at it closer and you say, oh, actually, the partnership comes months after DoorDash CEO joins Facebook's board of directors. Interesting. So maybe, they, maybe that was all kind of happening at the same time. Hey, we're looking for a partnership. Hey, why don't you join our board kind of thing? And then I saw this nugget. The company inked a deal with Dollar General. Dollar General. Now I'm looking at this and saying, yeah, Dollar General. You know, like the dollar store? And I just can't wrap my mind around this. Maybe could someone, anyone understand, figure this one out for me? Oh, yeah. They did a pilot with 600 locations. There are going to be more than $10,000 Dollar Generals on DoorDash. This was, uh, I guess, December of 2021. You can get same day delivery. Dollar store employees and couriers have frequently faced low wages, risky conditions, lack of sick leave, or health insurance. Now they'll combine to provide on-demand deliveries across some areas that haven't been living with the services yet. It just doesn't make any sense, right? So what I've been hearing is these like independent grocery stores, which references here, are actually turning off their e-commerce deliveries because they don't have the staff, they don't have the labor to pack up the groceries so that you can come pick it up in the store. And I mean, Dollar General is struggling with this labor. The article talks about it right here. And also, by the way, who's the demographic buying from Dollar General? Does that demographic really care so much about convenience that they're going to pay for a DoorDash to go get their stuff from Dollar General? I don't know. Um, Unless you could like group it together, which now reminds me of this company called Pinduoduo, uh, which is basically like <coughs> an aggregator 
So you could bulk purchase um, food and groceries and, and, and e-commerce products in China. If you're from these small villages in the middle of nowhere, they're not going to just route a single delivery out to you. <clears throat> so the village would pool their orders. And that was <clears throat> very effective in more rural poor areas in China, they've been able to really take that fight quite successfully to Alibaba uh, and their different e-commerce presences in China. And then you got this company, Mark Laurie, guy from Walmart, <clears throat> basically made walmart.com what it is today and uh, was the co-founder of jet.com, which Walmart bought for <clears throat> billions of dollars in 2016. So Mark left Walmart because he said he was going to go create like a town of the future, like this utopian future town city. Guy's a billionaire. And, but now he's, I guess he's back into doing tech startups. Interesting. And he has a restaurant delivery competitor called Wonder, <clears throat> which just raised $350 million at a $3.5 billion valuation. So he's back at it again. You got some of the biggest investors in the, in the world in this round. And yeah, now, you know, they're taking it to DoorDash and Uber Eats. So a lot of activity in this world of delivery, last mile fulfillment. Um, there's just so much happening in this space on the consumer side. Now you start to look at what's happening on the B2B side, and we are just getting into that whole game. And if there's a lot of stuff you think happening on B2C last mile logistics, I would argue there's going to be even more stuff happening on the supply chain B2B side of things uh, in the coming years. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.